We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Welcome to the first part of this week's two-part Taiwan This Week Taiwan Relations Act panel discussion special. Both panels were recorded live at a roundtable event hosted by ICRT, the International College Provisional Office of the National Taiwan University and the American Institute in Taiwan at the National Taiwan University. Entitled Taiwan Relations Act at 40, Where We've Been and What's Next, the event brought together former and current Taiwanese and American government officials and academics to discuss the history and future of the accord that has been the cornerstone for Taiwan-US relations since 1979. The first panel, titled TRA Foundation for Progress, is hosted by American Chamber of Commerce Taipei President William Foreman, and it looks at the history of the act and features American Institute in Taiwan Chairman James Moriarty, former AmCham head Robert Parker, and Academia Sinica Research Fellow Joanne Cho. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to moderate this panel uh, this morning. Uh, the, the subject is TRA, Foundation for Progress. And we're going to be looking at the history of the TRA from, from different, different, uh, different perspectives. And I'm delighted to have such a great panel. I'll, I'll introduce everyone, starting, starting from my right, uh, Robert Parker. Mr. Robert Parker practiced international business law in Taipei, in Washington, D.C., in San Francisco for four decades uh, he established two successful venture capital firm, uh, firms in Silicon Valley. He was awarded Taiwan's highest civilian honor. That's the Order of the Brilliant Star for his contributions to, tai- to U.S.-Taiwan relations. And uh, most interesting for us today is he was the AmCham, American Chamber of Commerce's uh, chairman. I think the title then was president, right, before we've changed the nomenclature um, when the U.S. Uh, uh, broke off diplomatic ties, official diplomatic ties with Taiwan, and, and his, uh, he played a very active, um, critical role in, in drafting the TRA. Um, then next down the line, Ambassador, Ambassador James Moriarty. Um, he's the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the American Institute in Taiwan since uh, uh, October 2016. Um, he's, he's been the director for China Affairs at the National Security Council, and it was, that was from 2001 to 2002. And, and he's also served as a special assistant to the President of the United States and the senior director for Asia at the National Security Council. That was from 2002 to 2004. And, and finally, at, at, at the very end, uh, we have Dr. Chiu Zhaolin. Uh, she served as the deputy representative of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office in the U.S. from 2004 to 2006. She's also deputy secretary general of the National Security Council from 2006 to 2008. And she's currently an adjunct uh, research fellow at Academic Sinica's Institute for European and American Studies. So very honored to be with you today. And uh, let's, let's start the discussion. I think the first question I would like to ask um, uh, Ambassador Moriarty, um, if we could just, just imagine a world without the TRA, what, what would that look like? What would, what would this strategic part of the world be like? Everybody wake up, please. I want to... <laughs> Very much awake. Okay. Uh, I want to start off by... Uh, re- saying that everybody is always taught to be careful about hypotheticals, but this is such an important hypothetical that I'm going to grapple with it head on. 
basically what the Taiwan Relations Act did was it gave a legal basis for U.S. relations with Taiwan. And just as importantly, that means that it gave the U.S. a legal basis to consider Taiwan security an important interest of the United States of America. Uh, the Taiwan Relations Act put in wording with respect to security that I don't think uh, the administration at that point had really expected or, frankly, actually very much welcomed. I think the predominant view, not the predominant, but a view held by many was that gradually China and Taiwan would somehow become one without stating any specific way that that would happen. What the Taiwan Relations Act did was it made it clear that it had to be U.S. policy, that that could not happen through the application of force, through coercion, the, the threat of force. Uh, and that led to a different world. It led to a world where it helped the democratic institutions of Taiwan flourish. It helped uh, guide the tri-cornered uh, the tri-cornered relationship that C.J. Chun laid out so well to a period of relative stability that has lasted for 40 years. Uh, frankly, the other side of the strait knows that we view stability in the strait, that we view the future of Taiwan uh, as very important issues, and that the future of Taiwan can only be settled at some point to the satisfaction of the peoples on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. So it was incredibly far-sighted. The alternatives are very ugly to look at. Increasing coercion, uh, perhaps no, no development of the democratic institutions here. Uh, so I'm very thankful to a very, very wise act of Congress signed by President Carter that helped establish and continue the stability in the Taiwan Strait. Just a follow-up question to that. Um, you, know, you know, there's often often talk about how the, the U, U.S. Uh, might just be treating Taiwan uh, like a bargaining chip or choma. How, what kind of uh, how does what kind of role does the TRA plan, play in making sure that doesn't happen? Excellent question. Anybody who advocates for somehow swapping Taiwan for some sort of gain with China has to explain how that can be done within the context of the Taiwan Relations Act. Inevitably, most of the talk you hear sort of implies that we would, we, the United States, would be okay with a more coercive policy on the part of China. And that obviously would be breaking laws that exist. So it, for whenever I hear people sort of advocating for, well, Taiwan is so important to China, therefore, we have to listen to the Chinese, listen to their concerns. Those concerns are usually what we call the velvet glove over the iron hand. Uh, and the implication is that we would stand by for a much more, uh, while the mainland implemented a much more aggressive policy. Frankly, from my reading, the Taiwan Relations Act rules that out. Uh, you would have to explain how you could get around the Taiwan Relations Act and agree to a much more coercive policy against Taiwan. So it is ultimately the safety net under the relationship which makes it clear to the mainland that we cannot stand by while a more aggressive policy is adopted towards Taiwan. 
Mr. Parker, I'd like to ask you a question. I think I've, I've uh, read something that you've said that I think was, was really fascinating um, about the derecognition. And you said this is a crisis that virtually everyone had seen coming and no one was prepared for. And I, I would like to uh, have you talk uh, a little bit uh, about your experience uh, in, 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 in playing this key role in, in, in drafting the TRA. And especially, uh, I'd very much like to hear a, a description of, of your experience uh, testifying before Congress in, in, in 1979 and, and how this testimony led to the, to the TRA. And um, most specifically, how receptive was Congress to proposals uh, for changing the, the, the Carter administration's proposed legislation? I think it's fair to say that we had certain hopes in that rather long period before the normalization with China and derecognition of Taiwan. Those of us here had hopes that the terms on which that change would take place would be more reasonable, more favorable to Taiwan than they turned out to be. Uh, in our view, the Carter administration largely capitulated to China's terms uh, in doing that. We had hoped, for example, that the embassy here, although that was going to go away, might uh, be converted into a consulate, like the consulate in Hong Kong, um, and that there would be that element of official relations kept in place, and so on. So it, it came as a shock when the terms were as um, flatly contrary to Taiwan's interest and the interest of American business in Taiwan as they turned out to be. As a result, those of us here really had to scramble uh, to try to put together a coherent position that we wanted to advocate to the Congress and at the same time deal with the local institutions here that were affected by the break in relations. I think there probably had not been a full recognition uh, up to that point of how much the infrastructure of daily life in Taiwan for Americans and American business depended on the U.S. military presence, specifically the Mutual Defense Treaty and the agreement under that called the SOFA Agreement, S-O-F-A, Status of Forces Agreement, because it was really under the SOFA Agreement that institutions important to Americans and American business here existed. That included the Taipei American School. Uh, it included um, um, the, the radio station in those days called American Forces Network Taiwan, AFNT. Um, the, the premises that were occupied uh, by American institutions, all of it really rested um, uh, on the foundation of the Mutual Defense Treaty and the SOFA Agreement so when we realized that those were going to be gone, completely gone, that we would have to reinvent a structure of life here in Taiwan at the same time that we were advocating for a Taiwan Relations Act in Washington that would provide the legal framework going forward that American business and American families needed. I think at that time you were, you were given the nickname the Underground Ambassador, right? Because of your your involvement and the amount of time and, and how much you dedicated to to keeping things running and with and, and helping with the TRA. 
Um, how did you do that while holding holding down a job? Uh, well, your firm, a it, busy it law take, firm. It did take all my time, but the the nickname was was partly a compliment and partly a tease. Uh, I wasn't called the underground ambassador with NM Chip, but our Taiwan friends used that moniker uh, to talk about me, and it it came about first during that period when there. There was no embassy, and and the interim before AIT was set up, and you know life went on as usual. The parties and the and the, the banquets and so on, to which the American ambassador would ordinarily have been invited, and since there was no uh, American ambassador and not yet an AIT director, they invited me, and <clears throat> so uh, I was I was uh, in conversation with uh, some of our uh, Taiwan friends, and they said that they called me the underground ambassador. And um, I said, well, I, I, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm complimented. But, you know, I have to say that um, that term underground in, in my country has a little bit of a negative contra- a connotation, too. They said, yeah, here, too. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Chiu, I wanted to, to ask you a question. We, we, we talked a little earlier, and you used the phrase that I thought was very interesting, that um, we were talking about uh, the foundation, uh, the, the positive foundation that the TRA has provided. And, and you, you mentioned that the, the U.S. has had many belts and roads uh, that have helped Taiwan, that have grown out of this relationship in the, over the four, past 40 years. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, more about the positive side of the, the foundation that the TRA has laid down. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. It's a great honor for me to be here, uh, sitting with Jim and uh, uh, Mr. Parker and you. And uh, uh, I remember President Kennedy in 1961, he said, one good remark. He says, victory has 1,000 fathers. Defeat is an orphan. Looking back 40 years now, and uh, we found Taiwan Relation Act was a success story. And then I realized there are 1,000 fathers American Chamber of Commerce is one of them. And today I uh, brought the uh, 1979 Congressional Hearing Report. And Parker's then chairman and made a very lengthy statement even 40 years later. I think those recommendations are valid. And I would hope you can distribute and, uh, and also reminded yourself what you did 40 years ago. And so uh, Tower Relations Act, uh, with uh, 424 members of uh, Senate and uh, a member from House, uh, many of them consider they are father of Tower Relations Act, but all of them, all of them are not only father, I'm sure there were uh, female a uh, member of U.S. Congress, they were f- mothers. So, uh, but a lot of uh, uh, questions uh, raised, including one the reporter asked me about Taiwan Relations Act. I personally think Taiwan Relations Act is the beginning of congressional effort to pass res- legislation 
to enhance Taiwan and uh, U.S. relations. After all, in 1978, uh, December 15, President Carter gave us seven hours notice. U.S.-Taiwan relation at that time was falling apart. And U.S. Congress seized the moment and uh, tried very hard to mobilize support and pass the TRA. But a legislation can be a cold legislation with no warm human being feeling. But Taiwan Relation Act, over the 40 years, we have seen evolution. Every congressional, uh, uh, for example, 1979, it was 96 Congress. From 96 Congress until 2013, uh, 2014, cumulatively, each year, there were more than several dozens of proposed uh, uh, legislation resolution related to Taiwan. And many of them became law. Uh, so this is the beginning of congressional effort to use, to pass red legislation to enhance U.S.-Taiwan relations. Last year, we have seen the concrete report of Taiwan Travel Act and the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, and now one after another. So this are not, so we should not just look at Taiwan relation as such. Cumulatively, there are so many. And uh, for example, and uh, uh, Director uh, Christensen has mentioned of WHO. Personally, I wrote an article on WHO, WHA. From 1999 to 2004, the U.S. Congress passed five resolutions and later became U.S. domestic law to support Taiwan's participation in WHO, WHA. These are concrete examples of congressional effort to help Taiwan to participate in international organization. So that's part of the uh, uh, effort. And over the 40 years, I can cite too many. 2002, for example, the 2003 physical year, and uh, uh, the U.S. Congress add something inside and consider Taiwan's a major non-NATO allies. And one after another, on security issue, on economic issue, on participation of international relations uh, organizations, Congress played an important role. Dr. Zhang makes um, a really important point that we sometimes overlook, and that is that the enactment of legislation uh, is not just the functioning of machinery. These are human beings. And the human factor enters into it and did enter into it in a big way when it came to the TRA. Specifically, President Carter did us a backhanded favor by his very maladroit, poor handling of the Congress before he announced the change in relations. Three months before, Congress had passed a resolution almost unanimously putting the president on notice that he should not do anything to terminate the Mutual Defense Treaty without consultations with Congress. Well, he didn't. No such consultations took place. And if Carter had 
brought in key members of Congress, powerful senators, important committee chairmen from the House, and huddled with them privately and put an arm around them and brought them in, giving them a feeling that they were part of a historic change in American foreign policy, he might have gotten a very different act, one that we wouldn't have liked nearly as much. But he didn't do that. And Congress was furious. And because of their anger at Carter, they were wide open receptive to the proposals that we made for a better bill. There were other things that worked in our favor. Carter's bill um, was poorly drawn, and so it was easy for us to attack and hard for the State Department witnesses to defend. Uh, the other witnesses uh, on the private side tended to address um, issues that were strategic or political or academic, uh, and we were really the only ones, and Chem, addressing the practical issues faced by Americans and American business in Taiwan and the need for a sufficient legal framework for the continuation of normal trade and investment and other relations between the United States and Taiwan. And as a result, um, the committee staffers who actually drafted the TRA um, paid attention and went back to our written testimony and told us when they came out on a congressional delegation later that they had, they had gone back and, con and, and consulted MCHAM's testimony numerous times in, in the drafting of the TRA. So it certainly made us feel good. Mr. Parker, I wanted to ask you about um, the whole process of, of well, the activity that was going on at that time, especially here in Taipei with, with AmCham and bringing that, that the perspective of, of, of people on the ground. Many, many of you at AmCham involved in this were working for multinationals at, that were probably thinking of doing business in China eventually. And I'm just curious what the home offices uh, thought about this. Was uh, what kind of messages <laughs> memberships uh, were, were getting from? You're exactly right. The home offices had already begun to um, have dreams of sugar plums about the opportunity of the market in China, and our Amgen members here in Taiwan were, of course, just the Taiwan arm of those companies and couldn't go off in a, in a completely different direction. So what we did, um, starting with uh, a couple of years before I, I was chairman, when Dutch Van Gessel was uh, chairman of AmCham, we laid down a policy that said uh, AmCham Taipei does not oppose improving relations with the PRC, U.S. Approving, uh, improving relations with the PRC, provided it's not done at the expense of Taiwan. And then we proceeded to advocate the kind of position that we developed further when I testified before Congress. The, um, this, the, the atmosphere in Taiwan when the derecognition announcement, as we called it, was made was, of course, um, an outburst of emotion. Uh, people were hurt. They were angry. But I thought one of the fascinating uh, aspects of it was that the the mood was not anti-American. It was anti-Carter and his administration. 
But for the Americans who were here, it was just the opposite. I mean, the Americans in Taiwan were, were embraced by Taiwanese, sometimes literally embraced. And people would come up and, and grab your hand down the street and just say, look, we'll always be friends. Never mind, Carter. Taiwan and America will always be friends. It was really a very heartening time. And, of course, uh, it, it led to opportunities for us to work together and get things done on the local projects that we had here. Ambassador Moriarty, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the most successful component of the TRA has been over the past 40 years? That's a tough call, except I, I will go back to my uh, original point, which is it, it provided a security safety net. And without that security safety net, the economic relationship, the people-to-people -people relationship would, would have become much more difficult pretty quickly in the sense that, uh, as you've seen recently, the temptation would be on the part of the folks across the strait to try and increasingly restrict contacts between the United States and the people of Taiwan in almost every area. And as I said before, we wouldn't have the legal underpinning for pushing back. And folks within any administration that argued that, well, this is a very important relationship for China, therefore we have to listen to the Chinese, would not have to explain how that was, that was in conformity with the U.S. strategic interests expressed by Congress. And, importantly, signed into law. That's, that's the difference here. This, is not a re this was not a resolution. It was not a sense of the Congress statement. It was U.S. law binding on future administrations that would have to be changed by the Congress to say, well, you know, we're not going to conduct this sort of people-to-people -people relationship because the Chinese are upset with it. We're going to allow them to sanction U.S. companies who continue to work on Taiwan but want to do work on the mainland. Uh, it gave an underpinning for everything we wanted to do. It made... Uh, an ability to, for an administration to unilaterally change practice with respect to Taiwan impossible. Uh, Dr. Chiu, I, I wanted to ask you, you um, did a wonderful job talking about the, the benefits, uh, the, 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 the positive aspects of, of the foundation that the TRA has created. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the setbacks. And we're not being negative here. We're being constru it's constructive criticism that every, every policy, every, every law needs. How could, it, um, how could it have been implemented better? And how, how has it been affected by different or interpreted or used by different administrations over the years? Um, thank you very much. I think at the uh, first 10 years, uh, even first 20 years, the implementation of Taiwan Relations Act sometimes is inconsistent. It's up to the administration to really implement. A law can be cold law and can be neglected, and a law like Taiwan Relations Act can be warm or even now feel passionate toward this law because it has contributed so much. But nevertheless, during the past 40 years, we have seen from time to time there is vacillation, inconsistency. For example, 1982, the August 17 communicate signed by U.S. and China. 
uh, I think it's inconsistent with Taiwan Relations Act. In 1994, uh, the, uh, uh, the Clinton administration, the ban of travel of top Taiwan leadership is another one because the TRA did not mention about that. And later in 1998, June 30th, when President Clinton was in Shanghai, he mentioned three no's. And all this, in a way, uh, indicated that uh, a law is just a law, but it requires a lot of effort by the uh, uh, U.S. administration. And today we have seen the Trump administration uh, actually starting from the Obama administration. They kept mentioning Taiwan as a vital partner of rebalanced pol policy. It's a key element of rebalanced policy during the Obama administration. And now Taiwan as a reliable partner, a good force uh, for uh, the world, and also Taiwan as success story. But in the past, last century, very often we heard Taiwan as a problem. Now we are a contributing factor for the goodness of the earth. And so, but still we need to remind ourselves it happened in the past. And we hope we can prevent uh, any inconsistency uh, violating the spirit in the language of Taiwan Relations Act. Dr. Chu, I'm curious, which, which administration, in your view, uh, was the warmest to the TRA? Uh, for the time being, I feel the heat from our Trump administration and also the passionate feeling of U.S. Congress toward Taiwan. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling, but I remember not long ago, 2009, 2011, 2012, different U.S. former officials, for example, uh, uh, mentioned about arms sale to Taiwan should be reconsidered because cross-strait relation was good. There may be less need for U.S. arms sale to Taiwan. Not long ago. So uh, the current feeling is a great feeling, but we should not uh, be uh, uh, obsessed with it. We need to uh, continue to uh, work out our democracy. Not perfect, but still one of the best in Asia. And uh, I remember Freedom House gave us great of uh, our uh, democracy, freedom, higher than United States. Last year and this year as well. So uh, we surpassed surpass United States in terms of uh, democracy uh, rated by the Freedom House. But I'd like to say, uh, because TRA has a provision about the U.S. concern of human rights, very often we heard from current administration former officials say, well, the recognition contribute to Taiwan's democracy. I say, hey, wait a minute. How about give China a try? See whether the recognition of China will help to be a democratic uh, political system. What about Cuba? You know, uh, so we went through very difficult uh, process. Many uh, fighters in Taiwan in the 80s, and they were jailed. 
So, but U.S. concern about Taiwan's human rights records and many other issues uh, also uh, help Taiwan to remobilize ourselves uh, to gradually become a multi-party system and become democratization and without any blood. And uh, we appreciate Taiwan Relations Act, but I don't think it can be repeated uh, in other political systems. Mr. Parker, I'm wondering if you can share some of your reflections uh, about uh, the early the early days, just after the passage of the of the TRA. I understand that the State Department imposed some some rather onerous restrictions, especially on contact between U.S. and Taiwan officials, uh, uh, flights, this this type of thing. And and I was th these are these are restrictions that really weren't called for. Uh, uh, by the TRA. Uh, they weren't required by the, the TRA. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, I, I understand after President Carter left office, uh, they, these restrictions were reversed. But um, what, was, what was going on in the early days? There was a lot of history uh, behind that. And in part, you could say that, certainly accurately, that the Carter administration didn't like the TRA. Um, they wanted something very different in the omnibus uh, legislation that they had put forward and uh, that the Congress uh, uh, scrapped. But there's further history beyond that, too, that goes all the way back to America's policy toward China um, in, in the late 40s, early 50s, the, the, the so-called who lost China debate. Um, in Washington, and, and a lot of turmoil that that caused, particularly within the State Department, uh, and led to um, you know the, the removal of some people and, and career difficulties for others, and that led to the emergence of uh, a core of people in the State Department who were much more sympathetic toward the PRC. Um, and saw uh, Taiwan as um, uh, an obstacle to improving relations with the PRC rather than looking at Taiwan primarily as, as a great American friend. So when the derecognition took place and the TRA was enacted, um, there, was, um, uh, there were a number of factors that came into play some pressure from the PRC, but a lot of it growing out of this animosity, you have to, to, to call it that, uh, toward Taiwan on the part of certain people who were uh, in the State Department and whose careers they felt had been adversely affected by, by previous policy. And um, one of the five people in the Carter administration who played a key role in the normalization of relations with China uh, was the Assistant Secretary for Asia, uh, Richard Holbrook. And Dick Holbrook was no friend of Taiwan. And he really was, if any one individual could be pointed to as the author of those uh, rather onerous requirements that forbid officials from meeting one another in, in their offices and required uh, congressional delegation aircraft that came to Taiwan 
to take off and fly to Guam and sit on the tarmac in Guam rather than be on the, the tarmac in Taipei. Silly requirements like that. Um, I had a conversation with Holbrook at one point and, and upbraided him on that. And he came right back at me. He was a, he was a very smart guy, but uh, very arrogant. And um, he said, well, I could, I could say that the staff or other people in the State Department were responsible for that. But he thumped his chest and said, I did it. So when, when he moved on, I mean, he ultimately wanted to become Secretary of State and would have if Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2008 because uh, she didn't, Obama did, and Hillary took that job herself. But um, when Holbrook passed from the scene, uh, at first professionally and later on, you know, unfortunately, literally, he passed away, uh, it, it opened up the possibility of doing things in a more normal way. And again, his, his motivation, I mean, he, he just had a, more of an affinity for, for the PRC. Then what, 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 yes, what he was very much motive? trying to ingratiate himself with the PRC, and I think he did a good job of that. Uh, he was also involved in another um, dust-up that he and I had that, that came right out of the TRA. You know, the administration said that all of the treaties and agreements between the U.S. and Taiwan other than the Mutual Defense Treaty would continue in effect. But they only said that. They didn't put it in writing. And so when we testified to Congress, we urged them to put it in writing, and they did. Five months later, by coincidence, I happened to be in China when, when Vice President Mondale was there because all of the Asian AmCham chairmen were there, and Mondale announced that the U.S. had entered into a new air transportation agreement with the PRC and was terminating the, the air transportation agreement with Taiwan. And, you know, I waited until the, the, there was media in the room and there were PRC people, and I waited until they were out. And I said, Mr. Vice President, with all due respect, that violates the TRA. And, and of course, he's got Holbrook sitting right next to him. He turns and glares at, at Holbrook, and that night, Holbrook and I have another head-to-head dust-up. And I said, look, the real issue here is whether you see this as precedent for terminating other agreements with Taiwan. And Holbrook comes back and said, of course. It's consistent with our whole policy of improving relations and expanding our relationship with the PRC. I said, well, I'm sorry, but it violates the TRA. And I, I went back and I sent cables to key members of Congress, and Congress really read the riot act to Holbrook and the State Department, uh, and that was the end of that kind of nonsense. But uh, there was that period after the passage of the TRA when uh, it, it took a while for things to shake out and really be done the right way. Well, we'll soon move into the, the question and answer part of our, our program, but I thought before we did that, if, if any of the panelists had any, any further thoughts, anything that they would, they would like to add? Ambassador Moriarty? I will quickly add that what, what we're hearing from both sides of me is sort of a backhanded endorsement of the wisdom of the act itself, that basically Congress set limits to what any administration could do vis-a-vis trying to, quote, improve relations with China. 
that basically they had to look at the act and realize that they can't willy-nilly cancel treaties, uh, that they have to agree to the basic terms, that there are limits as to how much any administration can do and yet stay within the confines of the Taiwan Relations Act. So it's a it's very wise. And, and a quick comment. Basically what you've seen is there are two factors at play here. Congress is well aware that you now have a solidified democracy in Taiwan that does all the great things that we heard about this morning, that, that is a really responsible player on the international scene, a terrific partner as we look at an Indo-Pacific strategy. And there's also a dawning recognition Again, as we heard this morning, that China views itself as a competitor with the United States, and therefore the United States has to see itself as a competitor with China. We do want constructive relations, but basically we should not be in the business of you know, throwing out the Taiwan Relations Act or in, in many other fields uh, giving China benefits without any return. That will conclude our first panel discussion on Taiwan Relations Act Foundation for Progress, 1979 to present. Uh, once again, thanks to our panel members, Joanne Chill of Academia Sinica, James Marietti, AIT Chairman, Robert Parker, former AMCHAM President, and of course, our moderator, Mr. William Foreman. Please, once again, put your hands together for our panels. You've been listening to the first part of a two-part Taiwan This Week Taiwan Relations Act panel discussion special, which was hosted by the American Chamber of Commerce in Taipei President William Foreman, and it was recorded live at the National Taiwan University. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Taiwan This Week Taiwan Relations Act special double header, and we'll be returning to our regular format next week, Friday, April the 26th.